To celebrate Father's Day, we are sharing a special Sunday edition of Walk with the King podcast, a sermon delivered in 1990 by Dr. Cook on Father's Day at Black Rock Church in Fairfield, Connecticut. Thank you for listening, and happy Father's Day. How many of you are with me in the morning on the radio? Well, quite a few of you. Bless your heart. I appreciate that. People feel as though I belong to them. Someone will come up to me, you know, and say, I know you. And uh, a man came up to me the other day at a Presbyterian men's breakfast and said, I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, what? I never did anything to you. He said, my wife makes me listen to you every morning. (laughs) Ah, That's too bad. (laughs) I'm sorry, but not much. But it's a, it's a blessed ministry. It keeps me on my knees, I'll guarantee you that. You can't just wing it, you know, and uh, preach as they say out of your hip pocket. You have to have something there from the Lord. So that keeps me every day seeking Him and asking Him that His blessing will be even in the tone of my voice. And sometimes, at least, that seems to be answered, and thank God for that. This morning, I want to take a text, and as every good preacher learns how, depart from it. Uh, the... Uh, the text is found in, in uh, Acts 13, 34, uh, 36, excuse me, where we read David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers. Uh, just picking out those few words, David served his own generation by the will of God. By way of uh, introducing ourselves to this, just let me remind you that The only way you can have an impact on your world is by serving your generation. You have to meet some kind of need. The self-indulgent motif has crept in, I think, to our thinking uh, pretty much in these last several decades. Uh, You deserve it, you know, treat yourself. Uh, You deserve a Cadillac and all of that. Uh, The idea of you only go around once, so get all the gusto you can. Uh, all of the advertising that you, that you uh, read nowadays is geared to sens- sensory satisfaction or temporal satisfaction. Grab it while you can, uh, and you deserve it anyway, is the motif of our uh, generation. Be that as it may, you're never really effective unless you're meeting somebody's need. Uh, not having your needs met, but meeting somebody else's need. You never get anywhere until you have stopped worrying about how bad you feel and start helping somebody else who is worse off than yourself. Your perspective changes when you get out of your own hang-ups and into the needs of the world around you. That's the background. That's where I'm coming from, as they say, in uh, speaking to you this morning. David served his generation. What contribution, fathers and all the rest of us, are we making to the day in which we live? I was commandeered as a minister to take care of a funeral some years ago. The minister that they had arranged for didn't show up. He missed that $2 honorarium. Um, But uh, they said, would you please uh, take care of the funeral service? So I said, all right. But I didn't know this person at all. And so I inquired around, you know, what sort of person was he? What can you say about him? And nobody had a word to say about him. Uh, finally, I found one person who said, well, I guess the best you can say about him is he was a good provider. So that was my text for that uh, service. I said he was a good provider. 
And then after that, I proceeded to preach the gospel to them so that they would have gotten the word of life in any case, as we hesitated for a moment in respect to the uh, corpus delicti. So anyhow, uh, you, uh, you have uh, your choice. You can get to Social Security respectably and make it to the mortuary in style. And uh, your folks, having looked at the size of your estate, can pick out a coffin either of mahogany or copper, depending on how much you left. Of course, you left it all, didn't you, uh, when you went. But uh, that really is not where it's at, is it? If that's all you want, then you're in bad shape this morning. Now, with that kind of a background, let me refer you to Philippians 3, uh, where Paul says, and I'm going to read a few of these verses for us, what things were gained to me. And he's just been giving a recital of what he could presumably be proud of. He was born of the right nation, the right tribe, the right uh, family. He had the right upbringing, the right education. He had chosen the right career. He was a success as a Pharisee. He, was, he had it made you might say. But he said, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, he said, I count all things but loss for the excellency. It's not something I gave up, it's something better that I got. Always keep that in mind. You're not, you may give up something to be an out-and-out -out Christian, but you get something so much better. He said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, and so on. So first of all, let me say to you that if you're going to serve your own generation, you better line up your values. Your value system determines the choices that you make. Now you're making choices all the time. Shall I take this route or that, 95 or the Merritt Parkway? Uh, you know, shall I have the car serviced at Greasy Joe's or Careless uh, Cal's or whatever it may be? You're making uh, value judgments all the time. But I'll remind you that the basis of your value judgments has to be in a person, in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ, if what you decide is going to matter uh, for time and for eternity. A couple of biblical illustrations, for example. Abraham and Lot were partners in the in the cattle business. Now the first Western story uh, you'll find in the Bible, as well as the first traveling salesman story. Did you know that, you salesman? First traveling salesman story is in the Bible, the book of Luke, the Good Samaritan, he was a traveling salesman. But the first Western, with the, the fight over grazing lands and water, is found in Genesis. And so Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen were mixing it up because they couldn't agree on, on who had a right to what. Abraham said, listen, let's not fight. You take what you want, I'll take what's left. And Lot had said, looked at all the plain of Sodom, that it was well watered everywhere, it was like the Garden of Eden. And he said, that's it, and, and Sodom is my market. I got a ready-made market, and I've got land that will be fertile and well watered, everything's fine. So he chose him, all the plain of Sodom, and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. He made the choice. Well, now the results of that choice were this, and I don't get this out of the Bible. This is Cook's revised version, you understand me. But at breakfast one morning, Mrs. Lot said, Deary, she said, you know, everything is picked over at the A&P when I get into Sodom and the Jeep. And uh, uh, don't you think we ought to live a little closer to town? And then the, she said, and you know, the girls need to take ballet. 
and you don't want them to grow up to be little hicks, do you? You want them to be cultured. So couldn't we move? Uh, couldn't we move to Sodom? And the girls, of course, four of them chimed in and said, "Yeah, Daddy, couldn't we move? Please, Daddy, please." And you know, of course, when four girls and Mama put their minds to anything, it happens. And uh, so they moved to Sodom. And, of course, Lot did very well, as a matter of fact. He became an alderman and sat in the gate and helped to judge the cases that came there. Uh, so he was, he was really somebody. The problem was that Sodom got into Lot and into his family. Two of his girls married unsaved boys. And when the angels came to warn Lot and his family, uh, Lot got up and went over and pounded on the door of his sons-in-law's houses. And he said, you better get on out. God is going to destroy the city. And the sleepy son-in-law opened the shutter and looked out and said, Dad, you must have been hitting the juice again. you got to be kidding. And he closed the shutter, went back to bed, and woke up, of course, in eternity. But he lost so much by making a choice based on a value that was skewed in the beginning. Samson made a choice. You remember that? Came home one day. In those days, of course, you know, you didn't date a girl. Your parents did. And there are some advantages in that. I sometimes wish that that uh, it might be so today, but uh, we've changed, haven't we? Anyhow, Samson said, I saw a girl down there in the Philistines. Oh, the, those, the, those lips, those eyes, and so on, you know. And he said, she pleaseth me well. He said, I like her. Go get her for me. I want her. Well, Samson's mother had a reply that every Jewish mother might have. Uh, she said, can't you, can't you marry a nice Jewish girl? Have I got a nice Jewish girl for you, she said. And he said, no, I don't want any, any nice Jewish girl. I want that Philistine girl. Go get her. He made his decision. And so for 20 years, Samson, the man who, with God-given strength, uh, no one could oppose, still never mastered his besetting sin. He landed in the lap of Delilah, who called for the barber, cut off those long tresses of hair that were his divine trademark of strength, and he uh, arose, shook himself, didn't know that God had departed from him, and was taken captive. They bored out his eyes, put him in jail. He ended his life a suicide, pushing aside the great pillars of the building where they had him uh, to make sport of him, and died with the Philistines. Made his decision, value, decision, I like her. Now, Lot made the decision on the basis of, it's good for me. So Samson made his decision on the basis of, I like her, I want her. Decisions. Now, Paul said, what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. He's so much better. Your values need to be focused in Christ. What is this going? You have learned to grow up a micro inch when you learn to ask the question, what is this going to do to my relationship to Jesus and to his people? Before you make a decision about something, you ask, what will this mean in terms of my relationship to my Savior and to the people of God? Very simple matter. Focus your value judgments in the Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul said, whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord and not just for people, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Do what you do heartily. That's our expression, psyched up. Greek New Testament word, if you read your Greek New Testament, it's the word psychikos, psychikos, psyched up. What you do, do it psyched up for Jesus not just for people. Why? If you do it for him, your relationship with people is going to level out very, very nicely. Now, what else? Put your life on the line for the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means be willing to stand against the odds. I suppose one of the more dramatic examples of people who stood up against 
on overwhelming odds, would be your memory of having seen on the television screen about a year ago the picture of that one lone Chinese young man standing in front of a column of tanks there in Tiananmen Square. And the tanks advanced and he stood firm and uh, held out his hands against them in a gesture meaning stop, and they stopped. And the lead tank swerved us to go around him and he stepped over into its path once again. And the driver of the tank swerved in the other direction and he stepped into its path once again. And one lone man put his life at stake against a whole column of those tanks. Yes, I know that later on those tanks and others with them ran roughshod over human bodies there in the square as the blood of people who were sacrificing their lives for the concept of freedom as they understood it was spilled on those cobblestones. I know that. And we trust that, that somewhere, somehow, in that great nation of China, the freedom that people so deserve and so long for may come. And one way it will come, believe me, is through the spread of the gospel. For even now, in house churches throughout all of China, the gospel is being preached and people are being brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's that one man. He says, okay, you can run over me, but he says, he says I'm putting myself in the way. What does that mean to Christians in the United States of America? Well, you're not going to be shot at sunrise tomorrow, and nobody's going to line you up against the wall and shoot you, I guess. But there's a great deal of subtle opposition, job opposition, educational opposition. I used to go to the various conferences that were called by the, by the uh, educational Sanhedrin in Albany. And, of course, it was always a morning session and then a luncheon and then an afternoon session. I generally came for the morning sessions to be registered, the luncheon to be fed, and then left afterwards uh, because nobody missed me. But the luncheon always was a revelation because uh, my, I'm an introvert, basically. I took a test one time and they said, you're 60% introvert and 40% extrovert, so I'm sort of a maverick. But I always sit at the end of the counter at the diner, you know, and I always come in last at the luncheon so I can sit instead of being sat by. And it's nice in a way. So I come into the luncheon and sit down, and uh, we introduce ourselves. This is Dr. Blow from so-and-so and, -so and uh, Dr. Bias from someplace else and so on, you know. And then it comes to me, and I say, well, I'm Bob Cook from the King's College. And they'll look at me and purse their lips and say, oh, you're religious, aren't you? As if to say, oh, you have smallpox, haven't you? <laughs> Same thing. You want to bite them. I never did, but that's, that's how you feel. Well, you see, there is a, there is a built-in bias against God in our educational system. You're quite aware of that, I'm sure. And Lear and the rest like him, well-heeled heathen, are buying up whole pages of newspapers advertising against the very concepts that you and I feel made America great in the beginning, faith in God and in the great principles of Judeo-Christian culture that we treasure in our Bible. Yes, you're in a battle. These are days when we are being fought on many different fronts if we're Christians. And if you want to serve your generation, you have to make up your mind on this question. Am I willing to stand firm for Jesus Christ and for the gospel and for the infallible word of God and for the classic Christian lifestyle no matter what? When people make up their minds to that, you'll start serving your generation because you will then be making a difference. One other word as we wind this up this morning. I have long since learned it's better to kill the sermon than kill the audience. <laughs> Let me just give you one, telegraph one other word to you. You want to serve your generation? Let God do something with you at the point where you're weakest. 
Paul the Apostle said that he had some great vision. He tells about it in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. And he said, uh, because I had this vision, and lest I be exalted above measure, he said, there was given unto me a thorn in my flesh. Now, uh, what that was, it was some illness, perhaps, whatever it was, I don't know. A thorn in my flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And for this thing, this, this irritation, this illness, whatever it was, I besought the Lord thrice. Three different times he engaged in, in protracted periods of prayer. This wasn't just what we call a word of prayer. This man really got down and waited on God over a period of time, asking God to do something about that condition. But the answer came as we read it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Then Paul goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then, he said, I'm strong. Now, you serve your generation when you allow God to make you strong in the areas where you're weak and where people already know that you're weak. You think about your next-door neighbors and you know pretty much about them. I can recall living uh, very close uh, proximity to neighbors in Chicago. They build the houses close together there. And uh, I knew uh, the neighbors on both sides. Uh, I had some interesting experiences listening in. I never eavesdrop, you know that. But boy, can I overhear. And we had some interesting experiences. I remember my neighbor on one side of us was, a, uh, was uh, the possessor of a 1931 Model A restored to mint condition. He loved that car. He would go out and, and he, he, called it, he called it dusting it, but it was a caress. You know, he loved that car. He made the mistake of driving it one night and had a wreck, and, and uh, the tow truck brought it back and deposited it in front of his house, wreck and all. And I woke up to the sound uh, of a man crying. Uh, there he was. Our bedroom window faced his dining room window. And... Uh, so I got up out of bed and looked through the blinds of our bedroom window, and there was this man face down on the rug in his dining room, kicking his feet like a little child in a tantrum and crying, oh, my beautiful car. And I went out to front and looked at it. Sure enough, there it was, the whole front mashed in and the last drop of antifreeze just trickling out on the pavement as I looked. And I went back and he was still crying, oh, my beautiful car. Well, his wife had more sense than he. She came over to him and fetched him a resounding kick in the ribs and said, get up. And he did. Uh, so we learned, from, we learned from that that his wife would have made a good soccer player. On the, other side of, on the other side, of course, they quarreled constantly, and we were the beneficiaries of that. He drank a little, and it was interesting when he came home in his cups. But, you know, you learn about your neighbors. Have you ever stopped to think that your neighbors know about you? Ah, yes, they do. And they know your weaknesses. Now, the neighbors on either side of us there in Chicago were wonderful people, really. But I couldn't tell you today all their good points. I don't know much about their good points. I know about the things I've told you. I know about them. And your neighbors know not an awful lot about your good points, but they're quite aware of your weaknesses. And if you want to serve your generation, you want to let God make you strong in the areas where you're weak. What is your weakness today? I don't need to know. It's none of my business. But I can guarantee you that you know and you're thinking about it this minute. The place where you're weak. You got a bad temper? 
Or are you proud? Or are you unforgiving, bitter and hard to forgive? Or is it, is it hard for you to control appetites and desires? Do you love money? What is it? I don't know, but you know. And if you want to serve your generation, well, you and I, us, we need to come by faith to our blessed Lord Jesus. Say, Lord, here I am. Take me as I am. And you can exchange by faith your weakness for his strength, your failure for his success, your lack of vision for his eternal purpose. All that he is can become yours by faith. Christ is made unto us, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Take by faith what you need. Begin to serve your generation by the will of God. Let us pray. Apply thy word to our hearts, O God. Make us different because Jesus is in charge. I pray in his name. Amen.